if you've got a Bible, turn in, in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. This is the last week in our series. We've been working through this chapter of the book of Ephesians. Uh, so it's Ephesians 4, if you've got a Bible or if you have your phone even, you can just uh, look up on the Bible app. We've got some, if you look under events, we always have that set up um, uh, to where you can find Mitchell Breen in the service and you can find sermon notes and announcements and all that stuff. So, But Ephesians 4, and we're going to be looking at the last section of this chapter, verses 25 through 32. As you're looking it up, you know, the book of Ephesians written to the church in Ephesus. And of course, we say it was written by the Apostle Paul, which it was, uh, but not just a human author. When we look at the scriptures, we understand that, um, as uh, 2 Timothy tells us, they're inspired by God. And so God wrote through a human author, but it was God's word. The Holy Spirit spoke through them, inspired them as they wrote. And so we get some of uh, their personality. We get uh, a writing to a group of people that existed in time and history and had certain issues they were struggling with. But in that, we hear from God himself. We get instruction from God himself that applies to us. Because as you know, if you've lived uh, just a little bit of time, you've already discovered that though at times we're tempted to think there's something new in the world, that really when it comes to people and relationships and interactions, that things, there really isn't anything new. And that the struggles that the church in Ephesus have is the same struggles we have. And so we can learn from God's instructions to them, we can apply them to our life and our situation. And so how thankful we are that we have God's word um, that's been handed to us and protected for us so that we can, we can have it. It's the words of life and we need it. And so Ephesians 4, let me read verses 25 through 32. Follow along if you would while, while I read. So stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth. For we're all parts of the same body. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. For anger gives a foothold to the devil. If you're a thief, Quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to others in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness Rage, anger, harsh words, slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. Let's pray. God, we thank you again for your uh, direction to us. Thank you for preserving and protecting these words, the very words of God so that we could have them, we could read them and study them, and not just understand them, but apply them into our lives. And so thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit in each one of us who have, who have trusted in you, in our, in our body, in our church. And Father, I just pray that you would impress upon me, impress upon each one of us through the power of your Spirit and through the, the Word, what it is that we need to learn and apply and change in. And God, I pray that you'd help me to change and to move forward. And I pray that for our entire church. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, hey, as we encounter uh, this section of this chapter, um, we get some new directives. Uh, Again, the apostles addressing issues to a church that existed thousands of years ago uh, in, uh, in uh, again, the, um, the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a Roman uh, outpost. It was part of the Roman Empire. Um, and so uh, it was filled with Gentiles, with Roman citizens who were, uh, were pagans. They had pagan religion. They had their pantheon of gods whom they worshipped and served and who really encouraged them in the base, uh, uh, the most base of human activities, the most base of human motivations. Um, uh, you know, it was said of the early church that when, um, when they came to Christ, there was such a radical transformation, right, in the men and women, but especially in the men, that the women, all the women in, in the empire began to want their husbands to be Christians because they were treated so much better. Instead of their husbands going to, the, to visit the temple prostitutes, right, and to live according to their base, um, uh, you know, motivations and urges, they became different. Their character changed. And all of a sudden they treated their families much differently. And certainly that happened for the women as well. And so we have in this uh, this epistle written to a group of people um, an expression of the importance of this transformation. You know, this group of people lived within a culture. They'd been raised in a culture. They had a certain heritage that came through their bloodline and their family line. And all of that dictated and controlled who they were. It gave them values. It gave them a certain character, a way of behaving things that they cared about. But the apostle Paul came in and introduced them to Jesus. And, and with the gospel came the presence of God in their lives. And what he's really urging them in this text is a reminder that they no longer are part of that pagan culture. They've been called out of that to live differently. And he's digging into some of those differences and it has to do with how they relate to each other, how they get along, how they interact. And so we live in a world that hands us and really uh, introduces us to and imposes on us certain values and ideas and ways of living. Moral character, if you will. And, and one of the things that we've got to confront, both personally and collectively, is the difference that the gospel's supposed to make. Paul talks about this transformation here, and he starts off with a very important one. So there's an important distinction here. He says, um, and and I'm paraphrasing my own words, but essentially what he's saying in this first sentence is, stop the he said, she said, instead tell the truth. Let's read verses 25 through 27 again. So stop telling lies. Let uh, Let us tell our neighbors the truth. For we are all parts of the same body. And don't, and, and don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. Again, he's saying, based on your new identity in Christ, change your behavior. You used to be deceptive in your relationships with your neighbors, with your even, uh, he's, he goes, even inside your church, um, you're being deceptive. You're tempted at times to be deceptive, to lie in order to make things look right for yourself to make things work the way you want them to. That deception, he says, is part of your sin nature. It's going to be a temptation. But you've been called to follow Christ, and so there needs to be a change. You need to stop walking in deception and start walking in the truth. And I thought about it a little bit, and what are some of the things in my own life that that caused me to be tempted to go in this direction, to lie or to deceive or to manipulate a situation to get it to go the way that I want it to? What What are the motivations that are there? And for myself... 
um, there's a couple that I thought of, and maybe uh, you'll think of others. Maybe you'll relate to these. But I think some of the motivations that we get caught in, again, these are just, they're, they're part of our sin nature. They're part of how we live. But the first one I thought of was that jealousy and envy. That, we, that, that I can look at what someone else has or what someone else is able to do or, or maybe uh, what God's given them or what they've acquired, right? And I can get uh, envious. It's a natural reaction, This is where the keeping up with the Joneses thing comes from, right? Keeping up with the neighbors. Because we naturally have a little competition and we get a little jealous and envious of what others have. And it happens even in the church. And so uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus, writing in his book, the book of James, chapter 4, 1 through 3, he says it this way. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away because of, uh, uh, from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what gives you pleasure. And so he's pointing out, and this certainly isn't the case all the time, but it's one of those areas where we can get off base, is when our motives slip into those areas of, of that base way of living, our, our base motivations. And those, of course, come from our sin nature, and he's pointing them out. And James says, listen, here's going to be the result of you following those urges and those motivations, is you're going to create conflict. Um, Fishermen who fish for crab uh, have an understanding, especially the ones that do it on a little, on the low key, you know, not the commercial, but the low key, and they fish for crab, and they use buckets that they'll drop down to the bottom uh, of the ocean, they fill them with bait. And they know they don't need to put a lid on the bucket, on the trap, because the crab will, fall, will climb in the, in the bucket. Well, once they're in there, okay, and there's several of them in there, if one tries to climb out, the others will instinctively grab it and pull it back in, right? And so this even has a phenomenon. Uh, it's, called a, it's, it's famously called a crab mentality. And it shows up among people sometimes too, right? It's that idea that if I can't have it, then neither can you. WiseGeek.com says that this term is used widely in the Filipino community to refer to people who pull other people down, uh, denigrating them rather than letting them get ahead or pursue their dreams. This uh, jealousy or envy can cause us when we see others, they're getting ahead or they seem like they have an advantage or something in front of us. Man, we we don't want to see them get ahead of us. And so sometimes even instinctively without really thinking about it. We can seek to drag them down a little, to check them a little bit, right? Maybe to say a little word of discouragement, you know. Well, good things never last forever, you know. I don't, like we think we need to do that. This comes from really that motivation. And we need to be aware of it. Check it. Because the scripture is saying, Paul is saying, listen, that's not the motivation we're supposed to come from. That can lead us to lie to our neighbor. The second motivation or, or um, instinct that I've seen in my life um, is this issue of insecurity and arrogance. Insecurity or arrogance that can result in a temptation where I'm tempted to lie to my neighbor, lie about a situation, try to manipulate things. And the interesting thing, I put those together, is because arrogance and, and, uh, and insecurity are very hard to distinguish. In my own heart, it can be hard to distinguish whether I'm acting out of insecurity or arrogance, Right? Because they look the same. And so sometimes it's hard for me to tell in my own life which it is. It's even harder for me to tell in your life. 
because I am not inside of your head. I'm not inside of your heart. And so I'm left to try to figure it out. Which is it? Is it insecurity? Is it arrogance? That's causing you to act the way you are, causing me to act the way I am, to want to lie, to want to be deceptive, to want to manipulate things to make me look good. And sometimes uh, it can be one or the other, but the truth is they look the same and they kind of have the same response, the same response that we're to have in our hearts and minds. A man went to a psychiatrist once and he complained of an inferiority complex. I don't know if you've heard of that. Inferiority complex. But he went through a diagnostic with the, uh, with the psychiatrist and at the end he gave him the good news, bad news diagnosis. He said, listen, the good news is you don't have a complex. The bad news is you're definitely inferior. Okay. Hey, listen, sometimes it's a stretch to find good jokes that fit the context. But listen, you don't want to go to a psychiatrist like that, right? He's not your encourager, um, not the guy that's going to help you through probably. I mean, it's important to identify the problem, okay? But Jesus' half-brother, again, in the book of James, speaks to this issue. He's so direct, and I find it helpful because sometimes I just need to hear the hard truth. But he's talking about this idea where we... Uh, whether it's envy and jealousy, whether it's arrogance, insecurity, whatever it is. And you could probably think of others that in your heart can lead you to this place where uh, Paul's saying, stop lying to your neighbor, speak the truth, change your behavior towards each other. Why, it comes from sometimes an air of judgment or criticism. James in chapter 4 of his uh, book in verses 11 and 12 says, don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. God alone, who gave the law, is the judge. He alone has the power to save or destroy. So what do you have, or what right do you have to judge your neighbor? Now, let's be clear on this area of judgment. This gets thrown around a lot in our world. And this isn't a judgment of calling right and wrong. Okay, that's not the kind of judgment it is. The Bible allows us to and even requires that we determine the difference between right and wrong. But what he's really talking about here is this tendency we have to take a superior stance, to believe that we are somehow better than our neighbor. We are uh, we're more in line with what God says to do. We're, we're following uh, the law better, or in our case, we're following the instructions of the New Testament. We're doing what we should do. And that that is, uh, we just have a tendency to think that we're just a little bit better, or maybe a lot better than our neighbor. And, and this is what James is speaking to. He says, listen, if you use the law as a way to judge your neighbor and to give you a sense of superiority, he goes, you're breaking the law to do that. That's not how it's to be used because you're not the judge. And we talked about it before, but our tendency is so much to, to want to be the judge. We so badly want to do that, and yet we're, we're not able to. We don't have the character to do it. And so we need to be careful that we don't step into that position. It's kind of represented by that illustration we use. You know, if you point your finger at somebody, then you have what? Three fingers pointing back at yourself. And it's a silly illustration, but boy, it can be true. I know in my life when I start getting critical and I start thinking and seeing the faults in everybody else, the truth is the biggest fault's in me, right? The biggest problem is in me. That's why I'm seeing faults in everybody else because I have an issue. And so sometimes it can be really hard to face that and to come to grips with it and sort of wade into that because it's messy and it's hard and we don't like to deal um, with those issues in ourselves, it's so much easier to think it's everybody else. And yet the, real, the reality is in order for us to move forward 
and to walk in this line of behavior that the apostle is speaking to, we must make those recognitions and realizations, and we've, we've got to make those adjustments. Um, he, he goes on to say that if, you, um, if you're treating your neighbor harshly in this way, you're really just hurting yourself, because of course we know, as far as of Jesus anyway, that we are all connected. We're part of the same body. And we worry oftentimes about, um, about the uh, persecution from the outside, what the world is going to do to us and the, the, the opposition we're going to face right from the outside and how it might affect the church. But you know, opposition from the outside, persecution from the outside, it almost always throughout the history of the church, it almost always grows the church. There's almost always an explosion. But you know what does hurt the church is when we get caught in these behaviors and activities, we end up shooting ourselves. It's self-inflicted wounds. And those do actually hurt the church and our ability to accomplish the mission. And so it's important that if we're walking in a way that we're, we're not recognizing that we belong to each other, that we find ourselves tearing each other down and being uh, very critical that we need to have the ability to come to awareness of that and step out of it. And by obedience to Jesus, step back into a place where we're walking in the truth and we're not, we're not dabbling in deception. I think one of the indicators for me that I'm probably in the wrong place on something is what's going on inside of me. Now, God has given us all emotions, and we have emotions, and the whole spectrum is, is valid, uh, valid and warranted, every emotion. But when I find myself experiencing a, lot, a great deal of anger, right, uh, towards others, towards a situation, when I find myself uh, in my head uh, having those conversations about people that are scathing, that are harsh, that anger, I think, for me anyway, is an indicator that something is wrong in me, that perhaps the biggest problem isn't with them, though there's always problems with other people. You, you guys have problems, okay? But I probably have more. I mean, really. You know what I mean? It's like uh, this awareness and this ability to recognize that. Um, and so, uh, you know, to recognize that and to see that anger really oftentimes is just an indicator that something is wrong in me. That if I'm, if I'm just walking in that constantly, um, that perhaps there's a problem that I need to address. Now, somebody might be saying back to me, and I only know this because I've said this to God, is, uh, yeah, but pastor, the Bible talks about righteous anger. Righteous anger, right? And that's correct. That's okay. So you see, my anger comes from a righteous place. <laughs> yeah. I know. I try that all the time too. I do. I try it. And I use it with God and I say, no, 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 God, I'm just mad at the issue. I'm mad at the sin, you know? But the truth is, as he often reminds me, and if he doesn't, my wife does, that the truth is probably different than that. My anger probably is not righteous. The number of times in my life that I may have actually pulled off righteous anger probably are not even, uh, you know, I couldn't even get one hand worth of them in my 50 years, you know. Uh, the truth is we don't walk in that very often, but we use it because it justifies uh, that thing. And we know the Bible. And so we go, oh, no, Jesus, he made, a, he made a, you know, quarter of whips and he went into the temple and he whipped them out. Okay, well, listen, when you and I, when our character gets to the level of Jesus, then, uh, then we probably can pull that off. And I'm not saying you haven't, but I just think we need to be careful of using that. 
I like to pull that card all the time too, but rarely is it, is it true. We're taught in the scriptures, it's interesting, a couple of different ways to handle our anger. And uh, there's two, actually two different ways. One time uh, a young man came to me and said, which one of these verses do you believe? And he gave me the two verses and he goes, because, you know, they're not the same. And, uh, and it's interesting. You know, here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, it says, don't let the sun go down while you're angry. Don't let the sun go down. So in other words, deal with it before you go to sleep. Get that anger dealt with so you lay your head on the pillow and the anger is dealt with. And that is certainly appropriate. I know Mary and I, when we first got married, uh, this was our aim, that we would never go to bed and go to sleep angry. But then we had kids. I'll blame it on them. No. No, it's hard to pull that off, man. It's hard. But we try. It should be our goal and our aim. Listen, let's, let's deal with things before we go to bed. But we don't go to bed angry because then you wake up and you're all, you know, you have those horrible dreams in the night and it's just a mess. And so let's, let's try to get things dealt with. And so there's wisdom in that. But then in, in Psalm 4, 4, it says, don't, let, don't sin by letting anger control you. And then he says, think about it overnight and remain silent. So, don't deal with it before you go to bed. Go to bed and ruminate on what the issue is and what you're angry about. And uh, remember the young man saying, which one do you believe? And I said, yeah, I believe them both. They're wisdom. And there's certain situations where I need to apply one and other situations I need to apply the other. And I've got to learn and grow in, in maturity to understand which it is. Is it something that I can resolve or is it an issue that I'm really worked up about that I need to consider and contemplate and pray over? And sometimes it's more than one night, right, that we're trying to figure out what is right here. What is the truth? What should I do in, re in relation to this situation? Ultimately, James says, again, I find help in his book in chapter 3, 14 through 16. But if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Those are not motivations to use. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. And so it really comes down to our hearts before God. And do we walk in humility? Do we walk in a surrendered state before God? And listen, it's a battle that none of us are going to win every day. But that must be our aim and the recognition that that's where we must walk. We've got to be careful of our motives. And why we have issues with each other. And being a follower of Jesus, I know, will lead us to love for others, peace with others, and ultimately harmony. So we're, we're to stop lying to each other. Stop being filled with anger towards others. And next, we, mean, we need to make an important shift in the core of who we are. See, we need to move from being a user to being a builder. Ephesians 4, let's continue reading in verse 28. The apostle says, if you're a thief... Quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to others in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. You know, we come into life, uh, into the world as little users, right? <laughs> we come into the, into the world as little babies and, and we can't do much to contribute to the world aside from, you know, smile, and most of those are a result of gas, right? And then, uh, and then we uh, giggle a little bit. And maybe we make some cute noises and cute faces. And we look cute, you know? And so we contribute. We bring happiness and joy to our parents and to, uh, and to our families and to the whole world. So we are contributing, but not a lot. We're not helping much. 
We just need stuff. We need, right? And, and as we go through life, there's a certain degree to which we stay in that mode. But really, what God intends for us, and, and part of really the message of the gospel, is to move us to a different place, to change us from people who are using the people around us, the world around us, to get what we want. And boy, that's hard to move away from that. We need to move to people who are able to contribute and to help build the world. And really, that's the message of the gospel, is that you know, God uh, um, sees us in the condition that we're really in. And I'll tell you guys, one of the most important things that a human being can ever come to realize and to recognize is that I and that each one of us walk in a state, in a condition where we are broken and fallen, where we're sinners, we're enemies of God. We work to get our own way. We work to get what we want. This is how we come into the world and it's how we live. And if we don't recognize that, and we think, well, no, I'm a pretty good person. No, 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 you don't understand. I'm way better than anybody else I know. You know I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't. No, no, no. Jesus does a good job of breaking down all that self-righteousness. You know, he, he does a good job. Read Matthew, because uh, he'll lay it out for you. Oh, you think you're good? You think you're pretty good? No, you're not, because your heart's wicked, right? It's broken. We're fallen. We've got to come to that realization. Otherwise, we don't step into the salvation that God offers us. And so... God sent his son Jesus to the earth who took on a human body, who lived among us, who walked with us and experienced our sin, not personally, but he saw the effects, he felt the effects, and ultimately went to a cross where he died, uh, um, killed as though he were a murderer, though he had done no wrong. And he went through that trial, that ordeal of suffering, where he took on the sins of the world and paid for them. This was absolutely essential. Look, the death of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus would not have been necessary if we're all pretty good people, if we really have a good heart, if it's our, if it's our environment that has made us bad. You know, There's so many excuses and things the world tries to come up with to answer the human problem, but the truth is, it's just sin. It's because we're fallen. And so we've got to come to a place where we recognize that. And we recognize the need that we have for the help that God has offered and God is so good that what he's offered is complete healing, complete transformation, restoration. He says, listen, come to me, recognize your position, recognize your need, and I will meet you. I will come into you. I'll forgive you. See, I've paid the price already, so I'll forgive you, and I'll save you, and I'll allow you to experience life the way I intended. See, this is how we move from being users to builders. This is how that transformation takes place. Because when God begins to fill us, his spirit dwells in us. We look to him to meet our needs. Our values change. Our character changes. We begin to see our issues and problems and the people around us differently. And that transformation can take place. And so the, the real example that he gives here is if you used to be a thief, if you used to be a user, stop. Go to work. Contribute. Build something. And then from the income you get, be generous and give it away. What a radical transformation. <laughs> what a radical transformation in value. For me to go as a person thinking only of myself, to be able to actually think of others and contribute to the needs of others, to provide for myself and help other people. See, that's the nature of the gospel. 
Generosity, though, can be tough. It can be challenging, even when we want to. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones told a story of a farmer who had one cow, and and she was pregnant, and he came in one day with good news to the family. His wife said, what happened? He said, oh, it's so so good news. We had uh, our cow, cow gave birth to twin baby calves. There's a red one and a white one. It's so exciting. And she was like, oh, this is great. And he said, you know what? Here's what I think we need to do. Uh, as they grow up, you know, we'll feed them and nurture them, care for them. And when they get, uh, when, they, when they come uh, of full, full age and size, he goes, we'll sell the one. And, and that'll go for us to help uh, provide for our needs. But then I really believe because God's blessed us this way, we need to dedicate the other one to the Lord. And so we'll sell that one and give those contributions to the Lord and to his work. And his, his wife was like, wow, sweetie, that's great, that's great. I like that idea. So which one is the Lord's? And he said, well, we'll decide that. Um, you know, I'll decide that. I'm going to pray over that and I'll decide that. But, um, but right for now, that's our plan. And so she said, okay. Well, um, a couple weeks later, he came into the house and looking pretty frustrated and down. And, of course, being a good wife, she picked up on that and said, what's wrong, sweetie? What's wrong? He said, well, the Lord's calf died. And she said, well, wait a minute. How do you know which one was the Lord's? You didn't decide. And he goes, no, no, I decided the white one was the Lord's and the Lord's calf died. Hey, listen, generosity, (laughs) generosity can be tough. How many of us have made promises to God in a moment of struggle and, and trial and only to have him help us out? And then, boy, we struggle to keep that promise, right? Good news that the Lord is faithful even when we're faithless. And that's the good news. His, his faithfulness doesn't depend on our faithfulness. But the truth is, we struggle with it, even when we have the best of intentions. But being generous is what God wants to lead us into. He wants to teach us the, the, the miracle, the incredible release, is when we come to realize that our provision does not come from the world around us, It doesn't come from whoever's name is on the paycheck, that our provision comes from God. That's what Jesus said, right? Don't worry about what you're going to wear or eat. Those are the things that the godless people worry about. You don't need to worry about that. Trust me. Trust your heavenly father. Look how he takes care of the the animals and, and the plants and the flowers. Look, you can trust him with your life. What a relief. It's to take a load off of us. Sometimes that's why we're angry. Sometimes that's why we're under pressure because we've not actually walked into a life of faith trusting God with the things that he calls us to trust him with. When we make that transition, moving to a place of generosity where we can build the world instead of using it, he also calls us to move from tearing others down with our words to building others up. Let's be honest. It is our nature to criticize Criticism is something we all find pretty easy to do, typically. I know I do, or I certainly can. Being critical is not that big of a stretch. I know a lot of people that think because they can see the problems in the world, you know, they've got a great insight. And I'm like, well, you know, from the time you're two, you can see the problems in the world. You know, not, what's not working for you? I mean, I don't know that that takes incredible insight. What, what takes incredible insight is finding solutions, you know, making things better. But recognizing there are problems is something that we all can see, we all experience. And we certainly, when issues and, and others' behavior and stuff affect us, well, then we can get critical. In our flesh, and when we live out of our flesh and our sin nature, we can curse and abuse others and use language that is harsh. And he really goes, listen, in your relationships, as you interact with each other, this has got to change. You're a follower of Jesus. You represent God. And so there should be a change even in your language. Now, I know um, um, that I spent some time as a young person 
in and out of this issue, right? There are times where my language wasn't so uh, uplifting and God-honoring. And so uh, the interesting thing is that I became a youth pastor later in life, and I talked to teenagers about it, and they'd say, wow, what really is cussing? You know, it's just, that's man-made stuff, you know. I'm like, oh, sure, okay. Well, go ahead and say this word in front of your dad and see how that goes, you know, (laughs) if there's no difference. And it's funny, at my times of struggle with that, when I was cussing like a sailor at school, I could sure come home and not a peep, not a peep. And so it's interesting how a lot of times people go, well, yeah, but I can't, you don't understand, you know, and and, uh, we just, we, we do, we make excuses for it. But the truth is, That really, it's just a representation of a lack of self-control and maturity if we can't control our tongue, even when we're under stress and pressure and upset. My dad was a great example. Man, I swear one time I saw him hit his thumb with a hammer. And my dad was, he just was. He was an integrate guy. And I don't think it's just because I was there with him. But he, he, he did get, I mean, it hurt, okay? And he did yell out an expletive. But what he said was, fiddlesticks. All right, I don't know. I was impressed. But listen, uh, the truth is that, that we do struggle. Listen, I'm not talking about a legalistic standard here. I'm not be, but I'm just saying, the, the apostle's saying this is a direction we need to move. That really even it affects how our speech goes and how we treat each other. Proverbs 14, 29. People with understanding control their anger. A hot temper shows great foolishness. And so we know that we're to move to a place of self-control where we're able to manage our emotions and how we handle others really does matter. The truth is, though, we live in a time and an era, and I don't think this is new, but there are a lot of us that are angry a lot of the time. Um, years ago, Warren Wearsby, who used to teach uh, Back to the Bible, maybe you heard him teach, he wrote a book actually called Angry People, right? And, and so it's not a new phenomenon. We have so much to get frustrated with, so much to be angry about, and we're under a lot of pressure and so uh, it, it, it kind of, for a lot of us, there's this, there's this kind of like we're in a pressure cooker, right? You know, and it's just waiting to pop and for the, the steam to come off. And, and it's hard. It's not a good place to walk in. It's not healthy and it's not right. And, you know, I have recognized um, uh, years ago that that anger really is probably an indicator of something that's hurt or broken in me. And uh, I'm a man. I don't like to face that or think about it any more than some of you do. But that is the truth. And sometimes we need to come to a recognition of a place that, man, if I'm angry a lot, and listen, we all have our moments, but if I'm angry a lot, if it's a character trait that I see in my life, then I probably need to address that. I need to do something about it. I need to get to the bottom of it, so to speak. Paul says if you get angry at others, use abusive language, try to demean them or tear them down, you need to stop. That's really his message. There's there's just no room for that. It doesn't belong in the life of a Christian. It's not how we interact with each other. Your interactions should build others up and leave them encouraged, not discouraged. I've been tempted at times to give up on people. Uh, What happens is we get hurt, and sometimes by people that we thought we could trust, and this causes damage. Um, Max, uh, or John Maxwell, uh, who's a pretty prolific teacher and leader and pastor, I heard him sharing a testimony of early in his ministry where uh, he had uh, brought a young man under his wing and had begun to teach him and raise him up, and he poured tons of time and energy into him, and he, he just saw the future. He said, we're going to change the world together, and he saw so much promise. And then there was a betrayal, and uh, he had to fire the young man, and, and things fell apart, and he was so hurt and so devastated by it, he said, I'm not going to let another person in my heart. And he goes, I lived six months that way, and I just held people out. But he goes, then I came to the realization that I couldn't make it on my own. 
I couldn't do what God had called me to do on my own. And so we go through seasons of hurt, and that's something we all have or will experience, and yet we must find a way to healing. We must find a way to walk with the Spirit of God, restoring us and allowing us once again to trust and to accept and to move forward. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. So God calls us to leave our old way of dealing with others, from using and abusing others to helping and encouraging them. The real objective here is to honor God in your life. Let's read verses 30 through 32 again. And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. Don't, be, don't bring grief to the Holy Spirit by the way you live. You know, um, as I was a kid coming up, I was the oldest of four siblings, and um, I thought part of my calling and job was to help my parents in keeping everybody in line, you know, because my three younger siblings could get out of line pretty easily, and I didn't think my mom was able to handle it all the time, and so I felt like I needed to help with that. Now, sadly, my mom didn't always see the benefit in my efforts, and so there were times where she would go, listen, buddy, you need to knock it off. You're being a jerk, right? Quit messing with your uh, brothers and sister, and so, uh, not all the time, but I'm saying on a couple of occasions, I didn't listen very well. And things escalated. And pretty soon, my mom was saying, uh, calling me a name that I didn't hear very often. So I always was John growing up. But there were certain moments where I heard, Jonathan, Paul, Simpson, wait till your dad gets home. Okay, that struck fear into my little heart. And I got scared because I knew that with my mom, I could kind of talk my way out of things sometimes. But there was something about my dad. You know, he wasn't, uh, I never saw him angry, never, never let, raised his voice. Um, but if he came home and my mom said, that boy of yours hasn't been acting right, you know, he believed her most of the time. And there wasn't really anything I could say that would change his mind. And so I ended up getting corrected and sometimes that correction hurt, right? But the truth is that I needed that correction and I needed that, uh, that investment of his love in my life. But as I grew older, you know, that stopped, right? The punishment didn't come the same. He treated me differently. But what I did begin to see, which was probably harder for me, was at times uh, as I grew older and at times made some bad decisions that didn't reflect well on my dad and on my family and the way that he had raised me, I would see a look in his, in his face that was harder to take, and that was a look of disappointment. That was a, a sense of um, regret on his part that I wasn't living up to what he thought I could be and do. And the truth is that we think oftentimes of God's punishment, and we fear that. But once you know God and you've walked with God a bit, I think what's harder to take is the thought of God's disappointment with me about the way I'm handling things, the way I'm living. I would urge you, as the apostle urges us, don't live in such a way that you disappoint God. 
He has, in fact, sacrificed for you, done everything for you, brought you to new life, saved you, not so you could continue to live like the culture around you, but so that you could be changed and transformed. You could start to reflect him, and specifically in the way that we treat others. It needs to change. We always feel justified in our behavior, but the truth is that we're never justified if we're living and treating others differently than God calls us to. The apostle said, here's some things you need to get out of your life. Get rid of all bitterness. Bitter, a bitter heart's one filled with offense and holds a grudge. And he goes, treat that like poison. Do not allow it in your life. He says, get rid of all rage. That's violent or uncontrollable anger. Get rid of anger. Horace was right when he said, anger is momentary insanity. We do things, if we allow ourselves to engage that emotion, we'll do things that we wouldn't do otherwise. There was a woman who tried to defend her bad temper by saying, well, I explode and then it's all over with. Yes, replied a friend, just like a shotgun. <laughs> Look at the damage that's left behind. And there always is damage left behind. Aristotle said anyone can become angry, but to be angry with the right person, to the right degree, at the right time, for the right purpose, and in the right way, that's not easy. He says get rid of all harsh words. That has the idea of yelling, screaming, raising your voice. Slander, that's orally communicating false and malicious statements that will damage another's reputation. And then get rid of all types of evil behavior. These are things that we should be moving away from. We're going to fall into them. There's times we're going to find ourselves in those emotions and situations, but we need to be moving away, moving away towards these things. He says these things should define your life and character. Be kind. That is generous, helpful, thinking about other people's feelings, which is hard for some of us to do. Seems frustrating. Why do I have to think about people's feelings? That's so touchy-feely. But it's in the scripture. That's what kindness is. Tender-hearted. That's compassionate, allowing your heart to feel for someone else and their situation. And then forgiving. Forgiving just as God in Christ has forgiven you. My mom used to quote this, vo uh, this verse at times to me, probably me mostly, but maybe my siblings too. I didn't start all the fights. Psalm 133. How wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony. For harmony is as precious as the anointing oil that was poured over Aaron's head that ran down his beard and onto the border of his robe. Harmony is as refreshing as the dew from Mount Hermon that falls on the mountains of Zion. And there the Lord has pronounced his blessing, even life everlasting. God, thank you for your calling to us uh, to both respond to your offer of salvation, to step into newness of life, but then to live differently, to step out of the culture that we live in into a new culture, into a culture that you've created that you influence, a culture that you give instructions to us. Father, help us to make that move again and again, more and more each day, so that we can be people who reflect you, who represent you well, who are not living in a way that disappoints you, but brings honor to you. We want to do that, Father. I pray that you would help us. Give us strength. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.